There are certain moments and words that shaped a new era in pro wrestling. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Brett screwed Brett. Die, Rocky, die. Introducing the Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the Attitude Era. Tune in as we relive one of the most exciting, intense, and over-the-top times in WWE with new interviews with the voices that made the promos, calls, and catchphrases into history. Listen now. This episode of The Ringer F1 Show is brought to you by eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, from superchargers and brakes to exhaust kits and beyond, eBay Motors levels your baby up to its peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride or your money back. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Armorall. When you want the best for your car, preparation is everything. That's why teams like Oracle Red Bull Racing use Armorall to prep their team vehicles. From interior cleaning and protectant wipes to car wash and wheel and tire cleaner, Armorall, America's number one trusted auto appearance brand, has what it takes to keep the two-time defending champions looking their best inside and out. And get this, now through May 31st, you can get $5 back when you spend $20 prepping your car like the Oracle Red Bull Racing Team. All you have to do is upload your receipt to Armorall's website after you buy. Visit armorall.com for program details and redemption. Terms apply. Armorall, chosen by champions. Welcome to the Ringer F1 Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Kevin Clark. Amazing show today. Stuart Taylor, a.k.a. Chain Bear, joins us for a mailbag explainer of this year's F1. We've got a ton of great questions on this year's track, um, just F1 in general, some of the car setups, what you need to know, uh, whether or not you're new to this sport or you've watched it for 40 years, you're going to learn a ton with Stuart. Nobody is better at explaining things simply on the F1 internet than Chain Bear. Uh, really, really cool. Within that, we gave a first look to Miami, the track, what cars might be set up well for it. Um, so this this serves two functions. Uh, it's it's an amazing mailbag, and there's also a first look at Miami and what to expect there. So let's get to Stuart. All right, joined by one of my favorite people on the Formula One internet, Stuart Taylor, aka Chain Bear. Hello, Stuart. How are you? Hello. Uh, nice to be here. How's it going? I'm so excited because there have been so many people who've needed things uh, explained to them on the Formula One <laughs> side, not just about this year, not just about this year, but about um, the last decade, all the changes. This is, you know, I, I think we keep kind of almost flippantly saying, oh, it's been the most regulation changes in 40 years. And I kind of feel like no one really slows down to even talk about what those are beyond saying, oh, there's ground effect and all that stuff. So I'm so happy you're here. I want to start with a big picture question. How did okay. you get into making a YouTube channel that explained this stuff? Like, did you see there was a niche? You just put it up there and there was, there was a, a, an appetite for it? Like, what, what, how did someone become one of the best F1 YouTubers in this genre? <laughs> well, that's very flattering. Um, uh, it kind of started at the beginning of 20, I want to say 2016, um, which people may have, that's quite, quite a bit before I sort of became proper on YouTube, but um, they changed the tire rules so that you could use three compounds during a weekend instead of two. Right. But, um, they didn't do a very good job of explaining it to anyone and all the websites <laughs> and the news. They, they never do. You know, they never do. No. 
Uh, and everywhere I looked, just copied and pasted the the sort of media release, the F1 release. So no one was really like explaining yeah. what it was. So, and I saw a lot of confusion. So I sort of looked into it and did some studying. And I, I, I quite, well, I quite like doing PowerPoint presentations at the time. That was quite a skill I had. So I kind of essentially oh, wow. film, filmed myself doing a PowerPoint presentation to explain how that worked. Not with an intention of starting a YouTube channel, but when I put it on YouTube, it got a lot of traction. It was sort of embedded into a few sites. And and when I came back to check on it, it got something like 20,000 views, which was mind-blowing to me. Um, <laughs> and, and I enjoyed doing it and I started doing it a bit more. And then, but it wasn't for like almost a couple of years later that I actually started doing it properly. But it took, yeah, yeah, I think I found a niche because either... Um, there are people who don't really have like a, the base level of F1 knowledge yeah. or technical knowledge and stuff. And I think when you're watching F1 on TV or if you're reading magazines and stuff, people talk in a lot of jargon and assume you know certain things yeah. so you can just follow along. And I like to fill in that gap so that when people do uh, talk in jargon and terms, because they can't explain everything every single time they talk about right. DRS or downforce or anything, I just want to bring people up to that level so they can fully understand what's being said which appears to be the niche. Where do you do your research? I mean, it's just, see, there's so many different topics that are covered, whether that's DRS or corners or how to fix Monaco, whatever it may be. Like when you're doing research, and a lot of people are doing research on F1 this year. I mean, there's so many people that when we do yeah. our mailbag, we got people saying, oh, you know, I'm doing deep dives. And I think people are curious about this. When you're diving into a topic, you look where? I mean, you. I mean, I look all over the place. There are, I mean, there are some... Uh, really good sites that cover things in a lot of detail f1 technical um yeah it's is is very good although it's it's sort of uh i wouldn't say out of date but it's sort of the, it's it's dated in sure uh, across many different years so if you're looking up things on aerodynamics it might be from like 2012 and you're sort of piecing things together um there are old school like f1 experts but then there are also just like um like technical papers, um, yes. studies you could look into and stuff. And I think because I have a sort a, a science and maths background, um, I probably find it a little easier than sort of I don't know the layperson at reading those and sort of getting information out of it rather than it being completely incomprehensible. Um, so a, a little bit everything depending on the on the subject. I, I've been fascinated. It's almost like in, I cover football primarily. Uh, American football. And there's so many playbooks out there where a coach mm. literally, he doesn't know it, but you know, there's a PDF of all of his passing concepts and you can look that stuff up. It's amazing to me to see how much, how many old plans are, are uh, up of old cars on the internet or just, you know, breakdowns from people yeah. who built the cars. They're just floating out there. And if you wanted to look into it, you could spend years just looking at what's on the internet as far as yeah. resources go and how this engine was built or, or, or this rear wing. It's really fascinating um, how developed the F1 internet is. Um, it's, and, and the fact that you're able to simplify that is amazing. All right, let's get to the mailbag. Uh, we had a bunch of questions. All of them were really good. Um, and kind of a couple of them, a couple of the, of the topics, uh, we got five or six people asking the same question. We'll get to mm -hmm. some of those. Let's start here. It's a question from Peter. What types of tracks consistently produce a lot of overtakes and thrilling races versus boring or uneventful races? What kind of corner structure and layout leads to these good situations? Uh, and that's a good question. And um, it's a question that may have a quite a different answer this year, but typically, um, you're going to need some straights or, or straightaways onto 
uh, a sharp corner that has like, that hard braking zone because that's where cars can follow each other and then uh, attack into a corner. So, for example, so a lot of the newer tracks you'll see have these built in because these are purpose-built modern F1 tracks. So Bahrain, for example, you've got that long pitch straight and then you go into not quite a hard, not quite a hairpin bend, but a very sharp left-right, no, right-left-right complex, which allows the cars to brake hard and, and attack each other. Um, tracks that have a lot of uh, sweeping high-speed corners one after the other, you t- tend to have um, less potential for overtaking in action because... Um, not only are there not opportunities to kind of have a go into the braking zone, but it's a lot harder for cars to follow each other. Um, the aerodynamics and the dirty air behind cars in high-speed corners um, causes the aerodynamics of the following car uh, to, 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 be, to be a lot weaker, and the car behind will sort of drop back because they just can't go as fast through the corners. Having said that, we've had four races this year. We've got new cars that are sort of designed to be a lot better at following each other. and Yep. And it seems to be working. It seems to be working really well. We're seeing um, cars following each other lap after lap without having to slip behind. Previously, uh, the dirty air was causing cars not only to fall behind, but for them to overheat their tires. So actually, if you were chasing a car in front, if you couldn't make your move within one or two laps, you would basically just drop back to a couple of seconds behind so you weren't as affected. And then you'd have to like look after your tires. And you know it kind of killed your race for a, a significant part of, of yeah. the race um, and, until you've got maybe new tires or something. So actually the answer to that question might change this year. I'm looking forward to Spain in particular, which is in a few Ooh. races time, yeah. which traditionally is a little bit of a dud race, partly because it's all fast corners. It's just, uh, th- there's no heavy braking zones. There's, but this year, if they can stay with each other, I think we might see some more interesting overtaking. Um, and again, we just had Imola, and for sort of mysterious reasons, DRS wasn't turned on for a large portion <laughs> of that. <laughs> um, but even though overtaking was a bit limited, we were seeing cars sticking with each other through a lot of the yeah. lap, and that was really, really encouraging to me. So I'm, I'm excited to see a lot of traditionally dud circuits maybe spring back to yeah. life this year. Interesting. Okay, uh, first impressions of the Miami layout looks like some long straights. What kind of racing does it look like when you're just looking at it from a, from almost a 2d perspective? I mean, I actually think it looks kind of, uh, it looks, it looks all right. It looks, it has this traditional, I say traditional, but the modern F1 purpose built ones over the last decade or so have had a sort of similar feel to them in that you have the long straights, you have the sharp corners, but they've started recently introducing a lot of these sort of high speed challenges akin to what you'd find in Silverstone and what you find in Cota um, which we, so we got a lot of that. We've got a high speed section sort of through the middle of the track. And then as you get back towards the pitch straight, you've got these kind of sharp bends and, and a long back straight before you get sort of to the start finish line. Uh, there's a fascinating section. Yeah, it's sort of, there's, so there's a long sort of sweeping left-hander through the back of the circuit. And then it gets into this really fiddly bit, which, uh, as far as I understand, kind of goes over a rise and over the other side. So corners 11 to 16, um, they rise up to about turn 14 and then drop down again, which I think would be really interesting because elevation changes can also bring in a bit of action. They change the length of the braking zone. They throw the cars a bit off balance. It makes it more of a challenge for the driver. So this could actually be um, a really interesting challenge. They've labeled it again as a street circuit. Um, I think it's street street circuit style. Yeah, yeah. It's parking lot. It's parking lot style. 
It is, yeah. <laughs> but I think they're sort of sweeping high speed between the barriers. I think I think it 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 could be it could be quite interesting. I'm not necessarily a fan of the weird harbor they've put in that that is fake, but <laughs> F1's got to F1. When I heard about that, I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I mean, it's off the turnpike. I, listen, my, my favorite team in the world, the Miami Hurricanes, plays in that stadium. I'm all for, for that being a glamour location. But listen, I spent a lot of time in that parking lot. It, there's not much glamour in that particular part of Miami. Um, okay, so let's get to Monaco here because I think there's people who hear that Monaco, you know, it's a parade, it's a processional, it shouldn't be on the, you know, a lot of race fans say it shouldn't be on the schedule. Is it, 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 can it be saved with the modern layout and the modern cars, which are too big and there's a whole host of reasons mm-hmm. there's no overtaking there? And what are some of your ideas to save it if you're going to keep it on? Well, again, I would love to see how these cars compete there, uh, first yeah. of all, because that will give us a, a bit of an indication as to actually where, how salvageable it is. I mean, I don't want to talk in dire terms like salvageable, but you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, and an- and another thing that's actually interesting is that Formula E, which which is a which are, they're smaller yeah. cars, but they've started using the full Mo- Monaco layout, and the racing there is very very good. There were like there were lots of overtakes last time they went there, so it's not impossible to have a good race at Monaco. But again, these cars are very big, they're very heavy. It's a bit of a different dynamic. I don't think we're going to lose Monaco anytime soon, but I think they're going to have to think of some ideas to make it work properly. And I, I sometimes I think we need to almost reformat the weekend entirely for Monaco yeah. uh, to, to get something out of it in the way that, you know, a lot of other motorsports have their crown jewel event, like the Indy 500. Um, they do their whole, well, it's not even a weekend. It's sort of like a two week extravaganza. <laughs> Qualifying right. goes on for like a week. It's, it's, a, diff- it's a whole different experience. And, and you could sort of yeah. change the format and the rules maybe to do something that suits Monaco uh, a bit better. Qualifying, phenomenal. Yeah. Maybe we need to like focus the weekend around qualifying and, and, and some kind of high speed, fastest lap contest uh, yeah. somehow. Or uh, a sort of like much more left field idea which i think i did a video on on my channel yeah was utilize some of the other roads to create mm-hmm. um what they have in uh rallycross which is joker laps which is essentially taking a detour a mandatory detour every whatever 10 laps or so yeah um because if you can't overtake maybe you can make up the time by going faster around a different section of the lap. You know, you could take it whenever you yeah. like, as long as you take it every 10 laps or so. You know, there are parts of Monaco you could use that for. It would be breaking with tradition, but I think uh, I, I think F1 has already kind of broken with tradition by producing cars that don't work at Monaco. And I feel <laughs> like it's just, uh, at the moment, it's just going to get worse. So I think they're going to have to think radically to make it work, especially when you've got a lot of other lucrative cities now yes. sort of uh having monaco like events it's not standing out as much as it as it once would uh all right question from jack if you had to rank the following in terms of what is most important to excel in formula one what it, what would it be power unit aerodynamics weight driver talent or anything else that jack is missing he says if you were if you're if you're drafting things to be good at in f1 how do you mm-hmm. rank that Stuart? Uh, right, I'm going to put weight at the bottom. I'm going to weight at the bottom. Uh, there's a yeah. lot of talk about weight this year because the cars are heavier and a lot of the cars are overweight. Um, Formula One has a minimum weight requirement, um, partly because there's a lot of safety things involved. To, to and, yet, and we don't want cars to be underweight. Um, 
And a lot of the cars haven't actually got down to that minimum weight. Uh, most seasons previously, cars start underweight and they put ballast in to, uh, to bring them back up to the minimum weight. Uh, they used to be able to move that ballast around to balance the car differently, but actually now they are limited in how much front to back. It's rough. They have to stay roughly about 46% of the weight at the front, 54 at the back. So there's not a lot they can do with weight these days. Obviously, it affects things like power, you know, the heavier your car is, the more power you need to get up to speed to accelerate. It affects how the handling, but it's kind of at the bottom of your pile. Between the driver and the car, the car is always going to trump it. Uh, a, a car can flatter a poor driver more than a, a good driver can flatter a poor car. You can stick, I don't want to insult any driver, but you can put one Please of the lower tier drivers <laughs> in, the, in this year's Ferrari. Um, sure. You know, you could have put, Nikita Mazepin from last year in the last oh, year's well, Mercedes. Let's not, let's not go crazy. Let's not go crazy. <laughs> and he probably, you know, he would have got podiums and and and, and brought in some points for them. Um, but as we <laughs> see, you know, seven times world champion is struggling in yeah. a poor Mercedes right now. It's um, so yeah. Uh, it is a car and driver sport, but the car is always gonna gonna lead the way with that. And then power and aero, it's they're much of a balance, really. Obviously. Yeah. You know, a good engine. You need a high-powered uh, car to compete, and especially if you're lacking in power on the straights, you're going to get overtaken. But if you can't put in that good lap time on the corners, then you're going to struggle. So there's there is that that balance there. Luck for the most part, uh, the teams that work on the power on the aero are very separate. They don't necessarily affect each other too much. But um, yeah, you're going to need to work on both uh, pretty equally, yeah. or 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 you will suffer. And the, and the teams that win the championship are the ones that manage to do both. Question from Jackson. A beautiful thing about American professional sports is that bad teams have a chance to become good through the draft for agency, et cetera. How does a good team and how good teams become bad? How does this happen, if ever, in F1? Is there a way for Aston Martin and Williams to ever improve dramatically to the point they are fighting at the top with Red Bull and Ferrari and a most years Mercedes? I guess the, the big picture question is, if you're coming in, you know, Williams got sold a couple of years ago. If they were saying, we're going to turn Williams into the next Red Bull, and listen, Red Bull mm -hmm. did it. They came in clean to Formula One, and they did it. We've seen, you know, Braun GP is a good example of, they, they came in with the exact right circumstances from Honda and crushed it. Um, but if you're trying to go from bad to good to great in Formula One, that looks like what, Stuart? Well, this has been, I mean, this has been a problem F1 has had and known about for a little while. And it's become harder and harder for uh, worst performing teams to get back up. You know, back in, the, back in the old days of the garage Easters and where you just turn up with six guys and a spanner, um, it would be a matter of pure engineering and one genius designer who would come up with great ideas. Now we're working with huge amounts of data, huge amounts of money. It's a lot more difficult to turn those margins around. And we previously had this problem where it was a sort of self-feeding vicious cycle. The teams at the top would get the most money. They'd attract the best engineers and staff. They would grow and grow and grow and, and be able to get even faster. Whereas the smaller teams, they'd get less money, they'd get less sponsorship. People wouldn't want to go to them. And so, and so now F1 has kind of made an effort deliberately to allow uh, less lesser performing teams to to work on that. Starting with the budget cap this year, um, I can't remember exactly what the budget cap is, but there is a, there is a limit on how much F1 teams right. are allowed to spend, apart from on drivers and some key staff. And a staggered wind tunnel and uh, computized fluid dynamics yeah. 
uh, testing. So the teams that have done the best in the previous season have a lot less time in the wind tunnel and doing a lot of testing right. and the teams that have done the worst. So, uh, and that staggered from 70% of like last year's time for the team who did best to 115% for the team who did worst. So essentially the difference between how much time in the wind tunnel has are allowed to spend this year compared to Mercedes is 1.6 times. And they'll re they rejig this every like half a year. So halfway through the year, if Mercedes are like fifth, they will get suddenly get a lot more wind tunnel time compared mm. to like Ferrari. So yeah, these are some of the things that have been implemented that have allowed, well, that have essentially stopped the big teams from running away. Of course, what you do need is to attract some really good staff who know their stuff. But we have kind of moved away mostly from that era where you get these one brilliant designers, even your Adrian Newey, who is still around, but your Colin Chapman and your people like that who could just come yeah. up with a brilliant idea because we're now working in this computer data age where it's a lot about crunching numbers and just relentless mm. testing. Um, and that's why we, that's why they, that's what they focused on in terms of capping. So yeah, Aston Martin can turn this around. We are at the beginning of a development cycle for this type of cars. Um, so whereas Previously, we were sort of at the end, everyone fully understood the rules and the cars they had and, and gains were very minimal. We are going to see probably a lot of churn in performance uh, over the next couple of years. So I wouldn't be surprised if Aston Martin do manage to hook themselves up over the next couple of seasons. Maybe not to championship level, but you know the opportunity's there. Is there a thing, if you were taken on by a team and they said, you need to invest, and they asked you, we need to invest in one thing. Is there a place you would start if you were trying to climb up from from 10th on the grid, 9th on the grid to try to get to third? Is it is it just you know, building your own engine and trying to invest there? I mean, how would you how would you go about improving a back of the grid team story? Uh, I mean, yeah, you do need some good key staff who yeah. know what they're doing and can then attract people either they know or, or know areas they need to focus on. Um, we are eventually going to move away from this wind tunnel area. F1 does want to get rid of things like wind tunnels, but you're going to need... Uh, you're going to need a good team and you're going to need a good manager and yeah. people who know how to uh, get the most out of the staff and the resources they have. I think that's that's, yeah. a, that's a key part. And that's something the Red Bullers and Mercedes, actually Mercedes in particular, I know they've had a, a, they had a bad year so far this year, but that's, I think, going in the wrong direction of their car and porpoising yeah. things, throwing up, um, you know, a bit of surprises. But actually, over the last decade, Mercedes in particular have shown very, very strong team structure and leadership. And they all seem to be facing in the same direction and working together. I think that's part of a key thing. Whereas Ferrari are doing well now, but when they were struggling in the last like five or so years, you did see that there was a chaos in that yeah. team. There was the leadership was <laughs> tricky. There was a lot of churn, yep. people coming in and out. Um, and this, you know, th the good start they've had this year could be a good leaping off point for actually just getting everything consistent, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, we got this question from like five people, um, but I'm going to give credit to Angela because she was the first person to ask it. Uh, she hears a lot about style of driving and, and she wants to know what this really means in the context of everyone is very quick on the grid. It's the 1% of the 1%, even the quote unquote pay drivers, you know, they, they still do quite well on F3 and F2 and, 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 and all, all other uh, formats coming up. And she wanted to know because, and a couple other people uh, made this point, you know, Yuki Tsunoda, 
was is is characterized as acrobatic, and Checo Perez mm-hmm. is praised for his ability to preserve his tires. And you know, I, I think that the overarching question a bunch of people had was how different can these driving styles be in over 64 laps? And, and can you sort of characterize some of these um, different styles and who epitomizes them on the grid? I mean, I, I have to, I have to admit, I find it very difficult to, to spot like visually yes. um, because I think these are small margins and this is where your, your pundits like Martin Brundle and, and people who have been racing drivers are very good at spotting uh, these kind of differences. But so as someone who's like an acrobatic kind of like aggressive driver is the kind of person yeah. who'd be very late on the brakes into a corner, uh, turn in sharply. There's a, there's a, these, you kind of have to keep these cars on the edge of adhesion, which means they're kind yeah. of, as you kind of going through a corner, they're slipping ve- very slightly and you want to take them right up to that point where they get out of control. You don't want to do Tokyo drifting around every corner, but there is an <laughs> element of just like very slightly sliding the car through the corner and in chicanes, you'll see them dancing and holding the balance of the car. That's kind of a sign of an aggressive driver who's kind of flicking a car into a corner and controlling it at the edge of that slip. Um, and then you'll get people who are very smooth drivers. Um, he's not in F1 anymore, but uh, Jensen Button was kind of the, and I think P- Perez is similar, um, a very, very smooth driver where, and again, this is quite marginal because when you when you break a Formula One car, you are essentially just like slamming your foot on the brake and <laughs> and getting four Gs to the back of the head. But um, he would have a, a sort of a longer, like a more... <laughs> It is so marginal, but he would have a longer, kind of smoother yeah. change from the accelerator to the brake pedal. He would turn the car in in a more gentle way rather than just flicking it into the right. It is the, It still does look from a flick from the outside, but you could sort of say, and he's, he's not fighting the car. He's just keeping the car exactly where he needs it. Yeah. And that's the kind of driving that keeps your tyres um, more preserved. Um, because you're not sort of suddenly throwing a lot of force into them, either by braking, accelerating, or turning. Um, and I think that's Jensen Button in particular was very good at feeling the grip beneath him, yeah. which is why he was very good at in changeable conditions because he'd know how to keep a dry car tire going a little bit longer on wet and knowing exactly when to switch over to a wet tire and just working those uh, marginal slippery conditions. It's very hard to spot. I think yeah. um, some people find it easier than others, but yeah, it is, it is more uh, just a sense of like how, how aggressively they maneuver yeah. everything. This episode is brought to you by mobile one. The mobile one brand knows podcasts are a great escape. You can listen to people talking about living and maybe even driving, but of course there's no substitute for the real thing. So the next time you're looking for an escape, try an actual escape. Take this podcast for a ride in the car and immerse yourself in the drive, because sometimes the best way to escape reality is to truly live in it. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash the ringer to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Armorall. When you want the best for your car, preparation is everything. That's why teams like Oracle Red Bull Racing use Armorall to prep their team vehicles. From interior cleaning and protectant wipes to car wash and wheel and tire cleaner, Armorall, America's number one trusted auto appearance brand, has what it takes to keep the two-time defending champions looking their best inside and out. And get this, now through May 31st, you can get $5 back when you spend $20 prepping your car like the Oracle Red Bull Racing Team. All you have to do is upload your receipt to Armorall's website after you buy. 
Visit armorall.com for program details and redemption. Terms apply. Armorall, chosen by champions. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Yeah, it's funny because, and I, I go back to this all the time, but uh, Mika Rosberg does those ex- track explainer videos where he goes on the sim, and he'll say he'll be on, he'll be on something and say, you know, I I take this corner like this, and he'll show his hand placement, and I go, Lewis mm-hmm. does it like this, and it looks this exact same to me, and I'm like, well, how how do, <laughs> how do you know the difference? Like, obviously, he's very in tune with everything, but it's like I'm I'm sorry, I don't understand the difference between how you and Lewis take the particular corner in Australia, <laughs> and and I guess you just have to have a special talent to just be able to understand the nuances of of the, of how how each driver is different, and I'm sure to them it feels dramatically different between driver to driver. Yeah, I think that's that clear. And I think maybe people who, who do proper sim sim racing and that kind of thing, and yeah. they've got the wheels and the pedals and they can feel it, they have a uh they will also understand that because they will be going through that in their in their sims and their games. Uh question from Elliot. Is this the year that Ferrari learns how to develop a car mid-season? <laughs> and we can talk I want to talk about uh all the upgrades and what's possible going forward, especially uh, in, in Miami. But is this, you know, I think that that, that was the book on Ferrari is that maybe some of these early advantages wouldn't last. And now with Red Bull pressing, maybe there's more concern. How does this play out with, with the upgrades with the top teams uh, going forward, Stuart? Um, well, I mean, I, th- I think all of the cars, we're going to see developments from them. As I said before, we're sort of at the beginning of the development curve for this um, new era of regulations. And wh- what I mean by that is when you, you know, when you throw basically an entire new book of regulations at the teams. They force mm-hmm. them to redesign the cars from the ground up. We're going to go through a period where they're understanding uh, how these regulations and limitations affect the car, what areas to exploit. Um, you know, previous eras of car, the cars start out quite simple, and then we start seeing all these little winglets and things appear and funny little shapes and stuff as sort of R&D gives them information about areas to exploit. Um, what's fascinating this year is that we've seen a lot of different solutions out mm-hmm. of the box. The the launch cars all look very, very different, which it wasn't what we were expecting and it's fascinating. And then I think we're going to, it's going to be interesting to see next year, the year after what kind of things, uh, yeah, well, stolen, get borrowed, inspired <laughs> across the team. Um, I think the development race this year is going to be very, very interesting. Ferrari and Red Bull, I can't, re- you know, you can't really say who's going to outdevelop who. They've both got uh, a lot of good people and a lot of money and a lot of resources behind them. Um, they've approached their cars in very different ways. But um, look, uh, Ferrari have definitely had a messy decade in, in Formula One, mm-hmm. not up to their standards. But, you know, this is the same Ferrari that won six constructor championships 
in a row. They can do mid-season development. Um, they do know what they're doing. They've just had a sort of a, a messy time. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them pushing with Red Bull all the way through this year. And how much is these two fighting with each other going to affect them for next year when essentially we may see a sort of reversal of Ferrari and Mercedes where Mercedes don't have to focus on the title this year and can spend all of their considerable resources sorting all their problems out and turning up next year with a world beater. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really, I, I think Mercedes still have some um, performance to exploit in that car. They seem very convinced they've got right. a very fast car, uh, but just with problems that is sort of uh, stopping them unlocking the potential in that car. Whether they'll get, uh, get to unlock that potential uh, remains to be seen. Okay, so knowing what we know about the upgrades that are coming, so Mercedes says they could have key upgrades coming in the next uh, in the in the next couple of or next week in, in Miami, and then Ferrari says after Miami is is probable. Mm -hmm. When you look at the track and you look at the way that things are are sort of shaking out for these two teams uh, or these three teams rather at the top, um, how does Miami play out in your opinion? Is there a car that seems primed to have a big week in Miami? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, I mean, looking at the track, I, I mean, I, I I can't wait to see it on Friday when they actually, you know, when we get to see how it affects the cars in action. It's got a little bit of everything from the, from the map. We've got these long straights, um, uh, which we know uh, Ferrari have a lot of power on, but then Red Bull have a lot of straight line speed. Um, Ferrari have been generally pretty good in the wiggly stuff um mm -hmm. saudi arabia was particularly interesting to watch because those two cars were set up very very differently um so we may see a little bit of that where we see uh ferrari taking a bit of an advantage through the middle part of the corner and then red bull coming back at them through the fast sections um it looks like an absolute nightmare if you're mercedes and you're pausing <laughs> because there are some high speed uh yeah. corners and sections of them which I don't, if Mercedes haven't started to solve their problem, I think they're going to suffer quite badly. And let's, calling them a top three team, even though they're sort of up there, I feel is a little bit generous because they've definitely no, of had a bit of luck that's benefited. The, like they are higher up in the in the tables than uh, I think they'd, yeah. Uh, partly they because be. of Red Bull's catastrophic misfortune on a couple of races. <laughs> um, so yeah, and again, with the with these upgrades and things, I think it's going to be, continually fascinated to see this balance between Red Bull and Ferrari because I just I don't think I can predict what these teams are going to do uh, race on race uh, a few more number one and let's get to the porpoising here why have certain teams Red Bull in parentheses had, got, had porpoising less than others well Ferrari gets it uh, but it's still competitive whereas Mercedes still can't figure it out and struggles. How are teams solving this and, and kind of going forward? What, what happens uh, with this porpoising? That is the tricky question, isn't it? And the funny thing is that even though a lot of teams kind of expected a little bit of this porpoising to happen, you know, before they turned up to the track on testing, they were all surprised to see just how much it was happening. And partly is because you, one of the big problems the teams have is uh, they can't simulate it properly. Um, like in a computer, uh, because mm -hmm. it's uh, very chaotic um, <laughs> aerodynamics to simulate. And they can't simulate it really in the wind tunnel because it damages the wind tunnel. <laughs> so right. they can only sort of play a little bit hypothetically. Um, at the moment, without changing the fundamental designs of their car, they can do things like stiffen the rear suspension or lift the car up, both of which will affect their rear downforce and overall 
uh, high speed through the corners. Uh, Mercedes' problem in particular, um, which separates them from Ferrari, uh, both of which do seem to have quite aggressive porpoising down high uh, down the high speed, is that Ferrari mm. seems to be able to get their car sorted out before it has to turn into a corner, whereas the Mercedes car uh, doesn't essentially get its aero flowing back properly by the time it turns into the car. And you need that aerodynamic flow to, to stick to the car. So what Mercedes are doing are having to essentially slow down early for a corner to make all that air attach again before they turn in. And that's part of the reason why in Imola we saw Hamilton just stuck behind Alpha yeah. Tauri for a long time because he, at the end of a high-speed straight, he's unable to uh, keep the power down and go aggressively into a corner. Um, why is it affecting some teams more than others? That's a bit of a complex aerodynamic question. But I, for example, if we look at the Mercedes, uh, which has gone with those aggressive, what they're calling zero side pods, where you've basically got, uh, well, very little bodywork inside, very, very skinny car. Um, what a lot of the hypotheses seem to be. So, okay. So there's a, re- so there's a reason that the, the Mercedes is so skinny. And the reason the Mercedes is so skinny is the same reason that the Ferrari is so wide and bulky in its side pods. And that is you kind of want to get the air that's coming off the tires, the front tires, and you kind of want to push it away from the back of the car. So what Ferrari do is they make these big, and uh, Red Bull as well, actually, they make these big wide side pods and the air hits those side pods and then blasts, essentially blasts sideways away from Mm. um, the rear of the car because you want nice, clean air going to the rear of the car. Mercedes, essentially, their aim is to make the car so skinny uh, that the air from the tires doesn't get anywhere near the rear of the car. It's kind of like a separate airstream. But what people are suspecting is this means that there's actually kind of this weird airflow over the floor that's having a really strong effect on porpoising. And that seems to be um, what is affecting Mercedes more than others. Ferrari also have like a sharp undercut at the back of their side pods, uh, allowing air to kind of flow over the back rear of the floor, whereas Red Bull uh, don't as much. And I think that's the general consensus of what's causing some cars to porpoise or not. So if you look at the rear end of the side pods of the cars, if there's a sharp undercut, if you could see a lot of the top edge of the floor, that's when you're going to see more porpoising. Fixing it, that's a different problem. That's going to be cutting into the floor in clever ways that I can't understand because that's uh, that's a very complex field of aerodynamics. But yeah, I, I, I it, it's tricky. Fascinating. Um, okay, so uh, two more questions. One is from sure. Ali with two, with two A's. Uh, first one is what are those... What is the sexy scooped out area on the Ferrari side pods <laughs> doing? Is it something others can steal for next season? And I also want to get you on if there anything from the Ferrari or the Red Bull in general, because you said every out of the box, every car was so different. Um, is there anything that uh, that everybody's going to steal next year from these top teams? Okay, Ferrari side pods then. So, and again, I, these are it's it's fascinating the Red Bull and the Ferrari are so close because actually they've gone for very different aerodynamic approaches down the down, especially mm. down the side pods on the rear of the car um so as i as i just said you're kind of if you are if you look at the rear of the car you want a nice clean flow of air flowing between the rear wheels over the top of the floor and that joins with the car going the, the air going under the car between the rear wheels so you kind of want these two airflows meeting at the back so what ferrari have done is they've made these nice wide side pods that are actually pretty straight up and down. They get rid of the, the air that you don't want, and then they've got a little scooped out 
this is not the scooped out over the top, but underneath they've got clean airflow going between the rear tires. Okay. They also need to cool the car. So they've got these um, slits down the side of the car mm-hmm. that we've seen some of the teams have. Um, you'll, you'll see slits in the bodywork with teams that have got a nice tight rear end. Teams who have chosen not to go with the, with the slits, you'll sort of see a big like uh, open void at the back of the car to let all the hot air out. So there's kind of two philosophies there. The hot air coming out of, the, of these, 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 these slits, you don't really want it mixing with the air that's going between the rear wheels, the nice clean air. So what this kind of scalloped out side pods are, are essentially doing is like channeling that hot air in a different direction and keeping it mm. away from all that horrible air. Mercedes, on the other hand, it's all kind of mixing. It's all kind of mixing together because they've gone very aggressively yeah. with this with narrow thing. I would bet. I'm not a betting person. If I was, I would bet that Mercedes <laughs> will re- will revert away from their design mm. for next year. I think they. I think it's quite clear that is far too tricky a design to make work, and it'd be much easier just yeah. to make a nice big side pod design. <sighs> As opposed to copying, I, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by this. I think we might see several. I think we might continue with several trains of thought on this because I think there are several ways you can approach the problem. And I think we're seeing that teams are making it work. Like Red Bull, right. Ferrari, very different cars. They both work, and they both understand their philosophies. So I, I can't imagine them suddenly just trying to switch to the other person. I think Mercedes, for example, like I said, something that isn't working, they may. St- look at the other teams and think, well, what's going to most suit what we've got already? Um, and yeah, I mean, Aston Martin may just, well, I was going to say Aston Martin might just copy Mercedes like they always do, but I think <laughs> that, might, that might not be the place to be looking this year. Uh, yeah, I, I get that. Um, all right, last one. Question from Michael. Can you explain DRS? And that's a big question. Can you explain DRS and specifically if the F1 community considers DRS to be fair and a net improvement over the non-DRS era? Okay, explaining DRS. So uh, I'll reiterate something I said a little bit earlier. So you're following a car through a high-speed corner. Um, you need a lot of aerodynamic uh, downforce to go through a high-speed corner mm-hmm. at high speed. If you're following a car, uh, that car in front disrupts the air, so you can't you can't exploit that air, essentially. You, you want nice, clean air to make your aerodynamics work. So what happens is uh, you, you end up going slower, you fall behind in these high-speed corners. And what that means is by the time you get to a place where you can overtake, you've fallen too far behind, you've heated up your tires, you're, you know, it's essentially just uh, following a car just kills you. It's, 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 it's causing you problems. So what DRS, to kind of rebalance this, when you get to a straight, if you're close enough, if you've earned the right to have DRS, if you're within a second of the car ahead, um, you can flip open your rear wing. So instead of being uh, draggy, it's just basically like a big open letterbox letting all the air through. This gives you, it varies by track and DRS varies by length, but essentially it could give you, you know, uh, 10 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour, more top speed, just allowing you to like uh, capture back that gap you lost following, mm-hmm. following the car through the dirty air. Um, that came in in 2010, I believe, or I think 2010. Um, it was a big improvement over what we had before. Cars had got very complicated aerodynamically and were causing a lot of dirty air and, rate, and it had just killed overtakes. 
2011 overtakes shot back up again because cars were able to sort of there were some more rules that cleaned up some of the cars but essentially you know it, it, it and it has helped a lot the f1 community a little bit mixed on it some think mm-hmm. it's too artificial but i think we know especially watching imola when we just didn't have it uh when we probably should have for about 15 laps in the dry uh, i think everyone was like okay well we still we still need drs it's still it's still a, a functional part i think generally it's agreed we'd prefer not to have it if we can get to a place where we don't need it when these cars can follow each other which they're much better at this year it's very positive um i think we'd prefer not to have it but it is a sort of net a net good i think we agree I feel so much smarter. I'm so happy you came <laughs> on the show, Stuart. This is so wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, any any last thoughts? I mean, you know, a lot of these people uh, who are listening, the last you know four or five years have gotten into it. Uh, there's been a huge, obviously, as you know, the Netflix effect. Um, if you're gonna try to to be an obviously bit on the same background as you, but if someone really wants to do a deep dive, are there are there books, are there articles where you you would you would have them um, follow follow a certain path, or is it just go to youtube.com slash chain bear and figure it out? Uh well I mean I think I'm probably a good place to start if you just want to get up to speed on uh, certain things from scratch, if you want to just you know have a deeper under, uh, understanding yeah. of things. If you want to take things further, um there are quite a few books by like uh, F1 engineers, ex-F1 engineers, yeah. people like uh, Adrian Newey wrote How to Build a yep. Car. I'm really bad at remembering things off the top of my head, but uh, <laughs> but there are a lot of books out there by people who've been yeah. in F1 who kind of yeah you know, talk you through a lot of the things they had to go through and a lot of the problems they had to solve, and that's um, you know very interesting. And there's and there are people from you know non F1 backgrounds, IndyCar, NASCAR, other motorsports uh, that will also give you a lot into that. There's and there are other YouTube channels as well. Um, I'm of sure. <laughs> No, no, there are no other YouTube channels. You're the only guy doing F1 on YouTube. That's it. It's on the entire <laughs> internet. Uh, Stuart Taylor, aka Chain Bear, thank you so much for coming on the F1 show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.